When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show presented by The Big Lead. It is St. Patrick's Day. It is the first day of the NCAA basketball tournament. In my mind, for my money, it is the best event of the year. Nothing compares to these first two days. The field is going to be whittled from 64 down to 16, and it's going to happen in the snap. Oh, it is the best. Looked at my bracket. As I said, I would give some brief thoughts on what it was. I know nobody cares, but I am contractually obligated to share that with you. Promises made, promises kept. Me and another guy, we really love that phrase. Simply put, it is something that scholars are calling a demented document as I've kind of gone off the rails this year for the first time in a long time, picking a lot of surprise teams to make the elite eight led by Colorado state. I don't know what's going on. I just love their guard play. I think Michigan's down. I don't trust Tennessee. Villanova has not impressed me. I like them to get to the elite eight, but lose to Arizona Then I have Iowa in the final four. Like I said before, I think that Iowa has all the makings to make a long run. They can score with anybody in the country. They might have the best player in the country. They're balanced. They do everything the right way. I have them squaring off against Wisconsin in the Elite Eight. I love the Big Ten. Big Ten stand right here. Biased. Totally not afraid of it. Then I got Marquette. I got Marquette over Baylor. Don't trust Baylor. They've been slumping down the stretch. I have UCLA and Kentucky meeting in an Elite Eight matchup and Kentucky advancing. Then I do have Michigan State pulling the upset over Duke, but eventually falling to Texas Tech, but Gonzaga emerging from that bracket. So the final four teams are Gonzaga, Kentucky, Arizona, Iowa. Give me Arizona over Kentucky in the championship game. That is a pick that won't be too off the board, but I love that Arizona is able to get playmaking from all five positions on the floor. They've kind of flown under the radar. I believe that Kentucky is gelling into form. There's so much talent on that team. I think that coach Cal figures it out in a way to get his team to the cusp, but it's the unheralded Wildcats of Arizona who cut down the nets. Taking a swift right turn, my guest today is Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. One of the legends in the blogging game, he has a new book out called Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works, parentheses, and doesn't. And it is a look at all the issues the league has dealt with in the last few years. It's kind of this too big to fail situation. We all know that there's scandal. We all know that there's controversy. It gets covered breathlessly on sites like his, on sites like the big lead. And yet the NFL keeps on plugging away ticking along, making incredible profits, ratings go through the roof. 
we had a nice discussion about how he got to this point in the industry. He really created his own lane, worked hard, and has been reaping the benefits. We talk about the book, the structure, why he chose to kind of give it to people in digestible segments. And there is a question about PFT commenter. I owe it to the audience. So let's not waste any more time. You're probably watching basketball and not listening to this podcast. Or if you do, you forgot you were listening to it as a game came down to the final minutes. So without further ado, here's Mike Florio. As we welcome in Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, he has a new book out, Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works. Then an important parenthesis here, and really doesn't. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. And I think, you know, I've been following your work for a long time and we've all been able to see the growth as someone who's in the blog space as well. Can you take me back to kind of the earliest, most humble days of pro football talk? What were you trying to build? And did you ever think it would get to this point where you're on here promoting a book you wrote with a show on television? Or was this all kind of a bit of a surprising journey for you? There was never a grand plan. There was never a strategy. It was just a way to have a voice, have a platform, small as it was at the outset, but do something that I was already doing anyway, which is following the NFL very carefully and very closely. And, you know, one of the things I realized after I practiced law for a few years was you generate a lot of paper, you write a lot, and it's for an audience of maybe five people the opposing lawyer, your client, if your client actually reads what you've written, the client represented by the other party, if that client actually reads what, you know, is written, the judge, the judge's law clerk, it's like so much paperwork gets generated and it just disappears and nobody ever sees it. And so I was always kind of drawn to the idea of writing for a bigger audience and we got started. And before I launched PFT, I'd kind of stumbled into the business through nfltalk.com, which is long defunct. It was bought by ESPN's insider service in May of 2021. I actually did that for six months. And when we decided to start PFT, I was on the, the horns of deciding sign a one-year contract and stay with ESPN or do my own thing. And I'm practicing law full-time at the time. And it's like... It, Life is very challenging when you get up at 5 a.m., work one job for six hours, go work your law practice the rest of the day and try to hold it all together. So the prospect of doing my own thing. And I had an instinct at the time that there's value in immediacy because when you're working for ESPN, it's got to go through layers of editors and people approve and, and, and it's delayed. And I just knew then in 2001, the sooner you could get your thoughts, it sounds radical now, and it sounds horribly outdated, but the sooner you can get your thoughts published, the better off you were going to be. So that's what drew me to start it. And it was just to have fun. It was just to have fun, have a voice and see where it goes. Yeah, it sounds radical now, but it, it was kind of that way eight years later when I started my blog for the Chicago Sun-Times. And that was kind of like built out of the idea, you know, we can talk about things that people are actually clicking on and we can be reactive and we don't have to wait for all this. So even eight years later, it was kind of slow. Uh, so you were smart to kind of see where things were going. And obviously everything has moved toward that immediacy route. Uh, you know, in the, in the time that's passed. 
you're kind of one of the unicorns like Jason McIntyre who saw an opportunity and carved out a specific lane uh, from kind of like that blog 2.0 world. That's, we see where you are now and the popularity, but what did it take in order to accomplish that? You like already alluded to waking up at five, working a different job, but how many hours a week did you work for how many years to get it to even be something that made sense financially for you? Well, like anything else, you got to spend some time grinding away and making nothing. And it's kind of the nature of an apprenticeship, anything you really care about. And there are different businesses where there are different rules and procedures. But for something like this, to get it started and to work through the years where there is no money, you truly have to love it because we went three years without making a dime. And it was just something that I enjoyed. It was a hobby. That's how I convinced my wife to support it. Like I could golf and be gone for six hours and spend 50 bucks for greens fees and, and then want to go to the driving range and be frustrated when I get home. And, you know, or I can ju just do this other thing where I just kind of dabble and it literally costs $50 a month for years. It was $500 to set up the website and $50 a month for the website maintenance services with a local company that honored their commitment for several years and was very happy the day that we left their servers because we had grown to this behemoth that they were having a hard time keeping up with. But it, it's just something where, and that's kind of how you prove you really love it. You do it for free. And, and I know that there are debates that break out on social media from time to time about internships and people being taken advantage of. And, you know, but yeah, plenty of people get free labor under the guise of internship. But one of the ways you really prove yourself is to do it for free, to find those, those hours in the day where you aren't working to work on something else, even if you don't know where it's going. And that's, you don't know where it's going, you just like it. And, and I think that's how you prove that you really belong there. You like it and you find the time, you make the time, you devote the time. And it was a lot of work, but I don't mind it. I don't mind, it. especially this. I know what it's like to work a hard job that's difficult and demanding and stressful. And I know that this is not it. And every minute I spend doing this is not stressful. You know, game days during football season are stressful because we're getting ready for football night in America on NBC and there's a lot of moving parts. But other than those 18 days of the year, this really doesn't feel like work. And I'm grateful every day that I've stumbled into this life. And I would imagine the fulfillment you got at the beginning as you were growing and kind of seeing the incremental gains is different than the fulfillment that you get right now, like branching out, doing television work, having your book, having a larger audience. And I think that something that's so cool about the content creation world is you can find ways to enjoy it. Every day is going to be different, but the challenges therefore are different and therefore they bring a different bit. They bring a different reward. How does the reward of having a book compare to growing a successful site or the first time you were able to be on television or even did like a local radio hit? Because I would imagine it's just another step in where you're trying to go, which you've said before is maybe not where you are intending to. And I perked up when you said the word fulfillment, because I've been wrestling this week. It's been a very busy week, a very hectic week. I deliberately selected this week for the release of the book because it's our busiest traffic week of the year. And then at some point during the week, I realized prob probably not the smartest thing to release a book 
during your busiest week of the year. So it's been a tough week to really have perspective and step back. And, you know, I, I picked this thing up and I looked at it and it's like, how, like, how do I feel about this? I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know how much fulfillment I've gotten from it. And I am wired in kind of a weird way that I am not big into navel gazing. I'm not big into taking stock of what I've done. And it goes back to when I played grade school football. And I've talked about this on PFT Live before. When we talk about the styles of old school coaches, it came up with the Urban Meyer stuff when he allegedly kicked his kicker that greased the skids toward him being fired. When I was 10 years old, first year I ever played organized football, the coach of the team, it was a Catholic grade school in the town I grew up in. The coach of that team never swore, never swore. He had euphemisms like cheese and crackers or, or whatever. I mean, he, he never swore. But, but if you were standing around, if you were lollygagging, if you were loafing in any way and he saw it, he would sneak up behind you and kick you square in the ass. And, you know, I don't know if it's PTSD. I don't know what it is. But to this day, I mean, it woke up something in me. And I could say I'm emotionally scarred at one level. But another level, I never want to be at a spot where I'm in danger of getting kicked in the ass. So there's no time to sit here. And I, like, I haven't even read any of this. I, I don't need to. I wrote it. But I'm, I'm reluctant to even flip through it. I'm afraid I'm going to find a typo, first of all, even though it's been reviewed and reviewed and reviewed and proofread. But I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to find in here. And it's like, this is over, this is done, I'm moving on. And that's what's been weird about release week. It's really not the ending, it's the beginning. We're trying to sell the thing. So as much as, as much as I'd like to say, okay, I did this, it's done, good. Put it over here, keep going. What's next, what's next, what's next? Oh wait, here's what's next. Hey people, buy Playmakers. Available anywhere you can find your books at bookstores and libraries. I've learned this week, though, I'm against libraries because I want people to go buy the book. Why do you want to? Why really? Why do you want a used book that somebody's taken into the bathroom? Why do you want that? Go buy your own copy of Playmaker. So I'm sorry for the meandering response. And maybe this is better for a psychiatrist couch. But I've really been this week struck by the fact that I don't really feel anything about it because I don't have time to. Well, that's uh, thank you for the headline. I'm going to get out of this. Mike Florio comes out against libraries. <laughs> can't stand it. I, I, I can't wait. I'm very anti-librarian. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. No, it's. I think your answer is interesting because it's the same thing when you write something. I feel that you're done with it, and then it comes time to promote it. You kind of want to move on to the next thing, so your timeline internally is a lot different than the external one. So we're all just kind of it consuming this book for the first time, but it's been a part of your life for a long time. And I, and I think that anytime you tackle a large project, you want to get to the moment where you can turn the page and do the next thing. So I would imagine that on a release date, and especially you said your busiest week of the year, you have your feet in two camps. So you're just trying to figure out what type of ground each foot is on. So let's talk about the book. I thought that the most interesting thing was that the chapters are really short here. You're not going to be getting these 25, 30 page chapters and each one of them kind of centers around a singular idea or a thesis or kind of like some long form you might read on the website and it's just kind of your collective thoughts that can be pulled from anywhere too I think it was really cool that you didn't tie yourself into one style of writing whatever story you wanted to tell 
you did that. And I think that you were, it reads to me like you were very free when you wrote and you just wrote what you wanted to say instead of like making it this cohesive thing that had like a brand or whatever. And I mean that as a, as a total compliment. Why did you choose to give the reader kind of these short bits of information that were self-sustained stories that had a beginning and an end? My guiding light has always been to create what I would consume. And I learned that lesson. I grew up as a huge fan of the band Kiss. And I heard an interview with them at one point and Paul Stanley, the front man with the, the only one without symmetrical face paint, the star on one side and nothing on the other. That bothered me when I was a kid. It's like, why, why do all the other ones have the, the same thing? And he only had, but you know, he had to be different. But regardless, he explained that they created back in the early seventies, the show that they would pay to go see. And there's a very basic, simple genius to that, right? What does the customer want? Well, you be the customer. If you're ardent about that thing, and I was a huge fan of the NFL, where would I want to spend my time? What would I want to read? And the book is an extension of that because first of all, I got a short attention span. And I know when I'm reading a book and I love to read, I love to read fiction, I love to read nonfiction, but I hate that feeling of, good God, when is this chapter going to end? Because you want to get to a point where it's a natural ending spot. So it's like, I'm going to write this book in a series of essays that are 750 to 1,000 words. Some are a little bit longer. Some of them had to be. There was too much ground to cover like the Deflategate chapter. But most of them are in that sweet spot and you can get through it quickly. And another thing that I like about the book that I hadn't really thought of, I sent a copy to Bob Costas, an advanced copy, and he gave us a very charitable quote that we used to market the book. But he said, I like that you can open it up in the table of contents and say, I want to read this. I don't want to read that. I want to read this. I'm interested in this. And you don't have to follow the flow that we've put there. You can read whatever you want, whenever you want. And I hadn't thought of it that way. didn't intend it, but that's another benefit to the reader. They're all broken down into a hundred plus different items, whether it's a story, a controversy, a scandal, whatever. And, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can get through it a lot more easily. I didn't want it to be a textbook. I hated textbooks when I was in school. So why do I want to write a textbook? I wanted something that, that I would want to read, plain and simple. So that's the easiest possible answer to your question. I wrote what I would read. There's some heavy stuff in here. And I think that when you read it, if you're a thoughtful person, you're going to have some introspection about your own fandom for the game. Now, if you haven't been doing that, every step along the way, maybe you're kind of not a serious person to begin with. But I think that some of the ways that you present the NFL and warts and all, it's not that you can't love something uh, if it has problems. It's more just like admitting that there's problems. And when I consume the NFL, I keep going back to the idea of it being too big to fail. And that term has been used often and lots of times been proven wrong. So I guess I'll ask you, first of all, is the NFL too big to fail? And in a cerebral sense, what type of introspection do you want to spark for someone who reads this about the way that they consume and enjoy the NFL? Well, it is too big to fail and it never will fail because it speaks to us in a way that nothing else does. It gathers an audience in a world that is on demand. It gathers an audience around the TV set like the shows of the 50s, 60s, and 70s did. It's got that staying power. And what they're trying to do is spread that same mindset to other countries. They're not 
taking the American audience for granted, but they'd like to work the same magic on the rest of the world that they worked on us. And for me, the attraction was as a kid in the early 70s, the Immaculate Reception game was the thing that kind of woke me up to the idea of pro football. I grew up 60 miles from Pittsburgh. Back in those days, the game was blacked out in the local market, even if it was sold out. Somehow we had access to a channel that others in the neighborhood didn't. So we were able to have the game on the TV. The rest of the neighbors couldn't. So we had a house full of people and the way they reacted when Frank O'Hara scores the touchdown and I'm there playing with my Hot Wheels or whatever, and I'm oblivious to it. It's like, holy crap. What, the, the, the grownups are yelling and screaming and there's no fights going on. I'm like, what's, what's happening here? They're actually excited. Whatever this is, it must be a big deal. But I got hooked on the NFL films presentation of the game. That was always a big deal. The, the mythology that between the voice of John Facenda and the artistry of Ed and Steve Sable, that, that it creates an idealized vision of what the NFL is. So I just assumed that's what the NFL was. And as you get older, you start to learn it's a business. It's kind of like learning that pro wrestling's fake. It's like, it's a business? No, it's not a business. It's bigger than a business. It's no, no, it's not about making money. It's about, you know, the purity of sport. And, and so you start to learn the business aspect of it. And as I've gotten to learn the sport, as I've gotten closer to it and gotten to know the people, you know, people say to me, well, well you hate the NFL. It's like, no, I, I don't. I don't. I love the NFL. I want the NFL to be the thing that they sold me on in 1973. That's what I want. I want it to at all times do the right thing. I want the owners not just to be some really rich person who has enough money to write the check to buy the team and then checks out or is too involved or doesn't know what they're doing about football. Like I want this to be a steward of a franchise that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people care deeply about. And as you learn more about the NFL, you realize that that's just not the way it is. And I'm trying to nudge one essay at a time, one blog post at a time, one comment on TV, radio, or podcast at a time. I'm trying to nudge the NFL in the direction of where it needs to be and to not be a business, to not be driven by profits, to not be driven by PR, but to do the right thing for the game, to do the right thing for the fans, to do the right thing for the players. That's really what this is. And is it quixotic? Yes, but somebody's got to do it. And you know, that's kind of become my mission in a weird sort of way. And it makes some people like it. It makes plenty of people tied to the NFL hate it. So it's kind of the way it goes. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting when you when you do stuff like that, and you know you're never afraid to inject your own opinion into something, or at least your worldview creates a scenario that you process all the information. I think if we're all honest, that's how we should all be doing it. If we're going to be real with our audience, I always find it interesting if for the people who might not like you so much to kind of be on the side of the NFL or the owners or the people who are doing this. And there's this kind of this weird subservience to power and not like you know, they might say, yeah, it's never going to be perfect, but it just kind of gives up and absolves anybody of, of wanting to work, or at least more importantly to me, like kind of ask for better, not demand better, but like saying like, yes, like we know it's never going to be perfect, but why not try? Why not? Why just accept that this is the way that it's going to be? Why do you think that that bothers people uh, when you're pushing for mild improvements? Because I think we're so quick to fall back to our allegiances and we perceive it as an attack 
on the team that we love? Like, why are you criticizing my favorite team? I'll give you a prime example of it. The Cincinnati Bengals are now at a point where they can be competitive for years to come. And they have a great young quarterback in Joe Burrow. And now the question is, will they do things in a way that is aimed at truly getting the best talent around him, starting with offensive linemen? And one of the things I wanted to see this week, when they signed a couple of guys, Ted Karras and Alex Kappa, I wanted to see, did they break from their habit? And they're one of only three teams that does this. And maybe it's only two because the Steelers broke from it last year with TJ Watt. But a refusal, and the Packers and the Bengals are the two who do this. It hasn't hurt the Packers all that much, although maybe it has. They only have one Super Bowl appearance with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, come on, something's wrong there. But a refusal to have guaranteed money beyond the first year of a contract. More and more teams are guaranteeing fully and completely at signing at least two years of that contract. And that's important because if you have a bad year, we get to next year, teams are looking to create cap space. If your contract's not guaranteed, you're at risk. The Bengals in the two contracts they did with the guys that they expect to help protect Joe Burrow do not have guaranteed money beyond the first year, which suggested, you know, maybe there are other guys they could have had if they were willing to do it. Maybe they could have been in on Brandon Scherf if they were willing to do it. And you point that out and the Bengals fans lose their minds. You know, you hate the Bengals. Why do you hate the Bengals? Why? Well, you know, if I really hated the Bengals, I wouldn't be pointing this out. I'd just sit back and watch it all unfold and get Joe Burrow to the point where he decides they're never going to change the way they need to. Maybe I need to continue my career somewhere else. Oh, why do you think he's going to do that? Well, we just got to be realistic about it. And I don't know why it is, you know, both Billy Crystal and Jerry Seinfeld had bits in the past where they say that if you're a sports fan, you're rooting for laundry. The fans line up behind the laundry. They know the players are always going to change. And in their lifetimes, the players change all the time. What's constant is the team, the logos, the colors, and the owners. And so they line up behind them before they line up behind the players. And that's part of what Playmakers tries to do is to get more people sensitive to the fact that you're tuning into that game because of the players. They're the ones taking the physical risks. They're the ones who have a limited lifespan to earn this kind of money. Let's just not always have this knee-jerk reaction that the players are being selfish. The players are being bad. The players don't, they're, they're not team first. Well, team first is a way of saying, screw the players, let's, squirrel as much money away as we can into the super yacht fund. I mean, you were seeing more and more of these owners have super yachts. If they have super yachts, they've got more money than they need. They don't need to win every negotiation with their players. Yeah. And I think it's, it's with that. And then also kind of like the labor dispute in baseball growing up, that perspective was never presented to me. So I was explicitly or implicitly, or just not knowing the difference, you know, getting that information and, through that lens. And I never knew that that was not presenting the whole picture. If you got your book, if this was a different author and you went through it and you wanted to pull out the most interesting or newsworthy topic for a pro football talk post, what would it be from your book? Oh, wow. Boy, that's a hell of a question. And I say that because I've learned that anytime someone answers by saying, that's a great question, that means they're just trying to buy time. I would be very interested in seeing what's in there about the scandals that were important to me, the ones that exposed that what's going on behind the curtain is maybe a little corrupt. And the moment for me where I had the realization was the bounty scandal in 2012. That was the first time I thought the NFL isn't really trying to do the right thing here. The NFL is trying to justify whatever it wants to do. And I think its agenda at the time was to create the impression that it cared deeply about player health and safety. So it found one team of many that had a program like this that rewarded players for clean legal hits that incapacitated an opponent 
and they destroyed the Saints. And then they went out of their way with the assistance of Mary Jo White, who's now back on the scene in the Washington Commander's latest investigation. They got Mary Jo White to sell a false narrative to the media and everyone bought it. And I remember the day, and it was some stupid, trivial little side issue that wasn't fundamental to what the case was about. But there was a piece of video that had been shot by NFL Films that captured someone on the sideline of the NFC Championship game in 2009 that kind of served as ground zero for all of this, saying, Bobby, give me my money. And Mary Jo White sold it very stridently and defiantly as coming from one specific person, which helped feed their theory of whatever it was they were trying to push. Again, it's collateral to the case, but it's central to the attitude. Because I had a moment where I realized that that's not what she's saying it is, but she's selling it. Why? This is somebody that they brought in to be truly independent. Why is she selling me so hard on the NFL self-serving version of how to interpret that? And that was a moment, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going beyond the lines of what this podcast allows, but that was a moment that I said, the NFL is full of bullshit. And I'm always going to assume that anything they're trying to tell me as it relates to any disciplinary action is bullshit until they prove it to me otherwise, because it's their agenda that drives this. They start at the end and they work backward. And that takes me to Deflategate. So Boundygate and Deflategate would be the two that I want to look at because Deflategate is the ultimate example of bullshit in action. They knew what they wanted to find. They reached the conclusion. They poisoned the well, the leak to Chris Mortensen of ESPN of false information that 11 of the 12 Patriots footballs were at least two pounds under the permitted PSI, that was aimed at turning it into a controversy. And they worked backward, the whole exercise, everything about it was about working backward to justify the decision that was preordained before the game even started. They knew what the Patriots were doing. They were determined to catch them. And even if the evidence at the end of the day did not support the finding, they were gonna cram that square peg into the round hole. So those are the two that I would wanna see. And I put a lot of work into those two because it look, and again, this is not anti-NFL. This is pro what the NFL could be and should be. There's no room, I believe, within the sport of pro football that I fell in love with as a kid for this kind of crap. And if it makes the people who are responsible for spewing that crap upset, that's your problem, not my problem. Because I don't want you in charge of the sport that I love. You are the one who has worked your way into the position where you have significant influence, control, and compensation for the sport that I love, but you're not doing the sport that I love justice, so I'm coming after you. That's where that all comes from. Yeah, an interesting thought experiment is just kind of trying to explain to someone right now what Deflategate was, because it sounds insane when you just give the facts like and it only happened a few years ago it's a crazy story it felt really weird and odd in the moment and as time has gone by it's we've had no clarity on it it's just kind of like this odd thing that the history books are going to look back at and be like wait what happened here what was going on and there's like an opaqueness that I feel like you know I'm a pretty big football fan I don't understand it to the level and you do a great job going in the book getting into the details it takes me back to the first conversation I had with my wife about the flake gate she said what's going on with this well, there's an issue about uh, air being taken out of the footballs. Well, why would they do that? Well, it, it makes it easier to grip the football. Well, why does that matter? Well, because if it's easier to grip it, it's easier to throw it. Well, isn't that what they want? <laughs> so the whole thing just makes no sense. But, you know, it was, it, I don't want to say it was payback. It was unfinished business from Spygate because some of the forces that direct 
the league believed the Patriots never got whacked as hard as they should have. So this was seven years later, an opportunity to give them a little bit more because they didn't get hit hard enough the first time around. All right. Three quick ones here for you. Favorite moment running pro football talk. What's the apex? Favorite moment. God. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I would say the moment that I knew that I would eventually stop practicing law and I would be doing this full time. And that's when we had our, our first major sponsorship with Sprint. And I still have a Sprint phone. I am a loyal person. And anytime I have like a screenshot of my phone that I tweet, the first comment is always Sprint. What the hell's wrong with you? But Sprint reached out to us out of the blue in early 2006. And I thought, because we, you, like, there's, this isn't real. And we kind of fleshed it out. And it's like, well, it is real. Oh, one guy wants to meet. Well, where is he? He's in Virginia. It's four hours away. I will drive over and we meet with him. And I remember coming out of the meeting and I said to my partner, hey, this isn't going anywhere. We wasted the day. I got, I got a lot of practice. Like I wasted a freaking day driving over here. You know, two days later, we have a deal with Sprint. And it was the kind of money that that told me it wasn't enough that I could say, Hey, I'm done practicing law, but that was the first time that I knew. I didn't know how, when, where, but I knew at some point this was going to bust through and it was going to be the only thing I did full time. And it allowed me to start curtailing my law practice and be more selective about the cases I took because I started putting more time into PFT and less time into my law practice. And I used to, I used to have a lot of stress because to get our payment, we had to have 2 million page views a month. And, you know, we'll, we'll have 2 million by lunchtime today. So it, it's just amazing how much it's changed since 2006. With PFT commenter, did you ever have the Jurassic Park moment where you felt like he was standing on the shoulders of greatness to create his own thing? I know that you guys have kind of a, you guys have a friendly relationship they have a blurb in the back of the book uh, on the, on the back. I could tell it was important to you because it went last, but managing that relationship, was it a challenge at all? Or are you just happy for him? What is, what is it? Because it's kind of a weird thing. You know what I mean? Like his name is from your site. Well, when he first showed up on the scene, I didn't quite know what to make of it. And I, I was looking at it saying, okay, is he lampooning me or is he lampooning the people who post comments at my website? And I go through this all the time. I just want to get rid of them. And I, I, I always, not always, because I go through stretches where I just don't think about it, but every once in a while, there'll be a comment that accidentally gets approved by one of the people who are employed to do that. And I'll see it and it's like, God, I just need to get rid of this. Like, what does this really do? You know, uh, but after a few years, I got to know him. Like out of the blue, he wanted to come to, he wanted to come interview me. He wanted to come to the house. And I was very like, I don't know who you are. I don't even know your name. I don't know anything about you. And you got to understand this isn't some office that you're coming to, some public office. This is my house. So I at least have to know who you are. I at least have to be comfortable as to what I'm getting myself into. And once he came here and we hit it off and, you know, ever since then, We've been friendly, and um, I was just on part of my take earlier this week. They've been great supporters of the book. They've they've been here when they've done their grit tour. They spent the night in the house. They did an episode of Pardon My Take from the, the studio I use above my garage, and uh, we've always had a great relationship. And you know, I 
I ultimately, like, it's one of those things where I knew instinctively if I had fought it, it would have been a hell of a lot worse than I just, if I just accept it and let it go forward. And every once in a while, I'll refer to PFT and somebody say, oh, you're not PFT. It's like, do your research, pal. I am <laughs> PFT. Do your research. Uh, was it Aaron Rodgers who said that? Um, in closing, <laughs> I, I think about this. Paul Joe Rogan, I am PFT. I think about this a lot. If I was trying to create a first ballot Hall of Famer for blog topics or personalities uh, throughout the years at the big lead, who would be in it? And obviously, Tim Tebow uh, would be an example. As many as you can think of off the top of your head, who are your first ballot Hall of Famers in terms of getting clicks to the website? Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Antonio Brown, when he does something crazy, Peyton Manning, Tim Tebow. That's just the last 10 years. That's Mike Florio. His new book is Playmakers, How the NFL Really Works and Doesn't. You know him from Pro Football Talk. I really appreciate the time and the conversation. Hey, great talking to you. And uh, thanks for your kind words. And I hope to do it again someday.